from Hamilton Place Strategies in Washington, D.C. This is the HPS Insights Podcast. This is an exciting episode for everyone. We have reopened our, our crypto series, Convos on Crypto, because uh, our, our good friend of, of HBS, Aaron Klein of Brookings, agreed to come on this week in, in perfect timing around the president's executive order on cryptocurrency. So we're going we're gonna to dive in and get Aaron's thoughts on, on the executive order, on uh, the Russia-Ukraine conflict and the impact on the, on the payment, global payment systems, what China's doing and what the U.S. is, is debating around CBDCs. So hope you enjoy this one, uh, the latest edition in our crypto series. Welcome back to HPS Insights and another episode in our new series about the policy and business implications of cryptocurrency. I'm your host, Brian DeAngelis, a partner here at Hamilton Place Strategies. And today I'm, I'm really excited to be joined by a longtime friend and, and former colleague of mine, but one of, I think, the smartest people in, in Washington by far, and that is Aaron Klein. Aaron, thanks for joining us. Brian, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be on. Great. Uh, Aaron, uh, just quickly by introduction, you're, you're a senior fellow of economic studies at Brookings, and you've directed uh, the Bipartisan Policy Center's Financial Regulatory Reform Initiative. I know you from our days back with, with Chris Dodd, uh, as you were the chief economist for the Senate Banking Committee, and then you went on to, to be the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Treasury under Obama, for economic policy in Treasury under Obama. And I was joking with you before we started uh, taping that I keep feeling like I get lucky on crypto where we were supposed to tape this Monday morning. And for scheduling reasons, we decided today's Friday, we'll, we'll bump it to Friday. And in between, we got a White House executive order on cryptocurrency. So now I get to sit here uh, with an expert who's been in that room and ask for your your hot takes on the on the EO. So what was your reaction to the executive order? What, what were you expecting here? Well, uh, Brian, you know, it's always better to be lucky than good. And in this space, we are fortunate to have this big thesis by the White House that came out this week. Uh, you know, executive orders and financial regulation are kind of an unusual and interesting creature because most of the agencies tasked with implementing financial regulation have been given various levels of independence from the executive branch. And so when the White House says an executive order, it often carves out independent, so the so-called independent agencies to give them more latitude. In financial regulation, what we've seen in the past several administrations is the use of these executive orders as a way to communicate to both the agencies and the outside world, the administration's game plan with the hope that the people the administration puts in place into the executive agencies, into the regulatory agencies, execute a vision that has some similarity in this space. And the executive order and the reports required from it serve as both timelines and demarcations at the White House can ensure that the agencies are engaging in the process and a level of transparency for both the White House and the public as to where the agencies are headed. 
The executive order, there are a few top line things that I thought were interesting. First, in the statement that came out right after the executive order, the statement was co-led by the National Economic Committee Director Brian Deese and the National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. And to put this crypto order in perspective, to have it co-led by the White House's point people for national security and the economy, to me, is a function of what's going on in Russia and Ukraine. Right. Uh, There's always been a foreign policy element of crypto. It has never been more important now in which the West is using economic sanctions as a response to actual physical war occurring in Europe. And so I think that the text of the executive order may not have changed radically, but the people who are involved in the statement by the White House that they're going to really look at this issue, not just from the economic context, but also from the foreign policy perspective is important. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's critically important. And that's a, a point I made. I'm sure you were in a similar boat. I got a lot of calls from friends in New York working on Wall Street. What does this mean? Should we be afraid of this? Should we be nervous? And my response was, no, on on first blush, you know, an executive order should be welcomed by you all. This this is a moment where the the federal government is saying crypto is real and crypto is here to stay and we need a unified approach. We've got a long road on what those regulations look like and what Congress does and and that'll be debates for another time, but this was a little bit of a stamp of approval Although I'm, I'm completely with you, I think the war in Ukraine and Russia's invasion, the economic sanctions kind of said, not only is this a real economic tool that we need to be looking at in terms of a consumer protection lens, but this is a real thing globally that we need to, U.S. needs to be leading on before this is, you know, something we don't have our, our arms around and control on. Look, the payment system has become a tool of policy in a way that hasn't happened in the 20th century, right? Right. And you can see this writ large in foreign policy glaring in what's going on in Europe, but you can also see its tools in domestic policy, right? We're old enough to remember that there was a period where online poker became a craze and a fad in the United States. And how did Congress respond? Well, it, 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 shut down online poker through the payment system. Right. It required banks to essentially debank online poker platforms, right? Which is kind of stunning when you think of all the other illicit activity that occurs online in which the payment system is really just an information gatherer, right? Structurally right. speaking, the idea was crime involves money. Money is more easy to track. Give us information about the money, and that will help us find the crime. It wasn't, let's use our payment system to, to try and stop activity X or Y. Now, that happened starting domestically with online poker. It's now you know, very much a big deal internationally in Ukraine. And this is why crypto and digital money is such a different threat to that level of control. And I think the way the executive order in the White House is reacting has been framed more impactfully by the potential need to maintain control. Now, the first one says, well, that's going to be bad for crypto because control means trying to stop things. Right. And, you know, when I served in the um, uh, Obama Treasury Department, 
the IRS came out with a rule essentially defining Bitcoin and other cryptos as assets, not as currency, which had a very chilling adoption on its transactional effects domestically because of the tax consequences. Right. Uh, here, we actually see something a little bit different. When you look at the White House executive order, there's now a lean in that the U.S. needs to be thinking more aggressively about digital currency in order to create, make sure that the system doesn't leave U.S. control. If you just look up the executive order, the, the, the acronym CBDC appears 34 times. Right, right. And, and, and a lean in now saying, well, wait a second, we may need to have a digital currency to either keep the U.S. in charge, uh, as other countries like China and others, go into a CBDC or allow for easier information and easier tracking of transactions. I think there's a belief that uh, blockchain technology creates more secrecy than dual book accounting. And I'm not sure that's a factually accurate belief. Yeah, I don't think that's true. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, just think about, right, dual book accounting has been with us, what, six, seven hundred years. Yeah. And think about all the colloquialisms in language that are related to problems in dual book accounting. Cook the books. Right. Right. Hide the books. Yeah. Right. Open your books. All of these are terms of art that we use, you know, uh, uh, in, in modern language to convey lots of other thoughts, almost never in an accounting context. Right. But right. all of those terms are derived from fraud or lack of trust at it through dual book accounting, right? I mean, how many, how long will it take till it says like, show me the node or unwind the ledger, right? Right, right. Uh, from, from a crypto system. And I think this is one of the the most promising, I mean, I, I personally think there's a lot of promising uh, technologies and, and uh, use cases coming out of crypto and and I'm using air quotes there for our, for our listeners because I think that that's become a term that's just broadly defining a very big ecosystem but um blockchain and that technology I mean like dual book accounting I think is going to really disrupt a lot of markets well it it ought to because Americans pay too much for recording things anybody who's bought a house and paid for title insurance which is one of the lowest payouts of any insurance. Yeah, Look at yeah. a land registry. Go to your county office land recorder. You know, my first job, my first political internship was for a register of deeds Ooh. in Middlesex County. And you're right. We would go, I, we would just watch a, a dozen workers go in every day. Pull out the big stack of books, look up the land title and the deed. And it's just, I mean, I'm aging myself. That was 20 plus years ago. But what an antiquated system. You think the system's changed at all in 20 years? We've digitized everything in the world, right? We've digitized our identity. We've digitized our social network, right? And yet we still have all these physical paper chains, car vehicle titles, right? There's all these recordation spaces where you go, wow, there's got to be a better way to keep track and record of this. And I do think it's a little bit unfortunate that within a group of folks, the the concept of blockchain has become immutably enmeshed with the concept of crypto and the concepts of anonymity. And in point of fact, you can have very public blockchains 
They create more secure recordation records that are more transparent and accessible if it's structured in the right way and certainly more efficient. And you look at, by the way, the, these, these recording taxes, these title insurance, these fees are among the biggest obstacles people face in buying a home. Fannie right. Mae has a recent report that came out looking at closing costs. It's a amorphous kind of list of things that can be you know, tens of thousands of dollars and are stopping people from entering home ownership. Look, we have a, a racial home ownership gap in America that's larger now than it was over 100 years ago. We've gone backwards in closing these gaps, in part because we have these very high fees based on antiquated technology, where technology can come in and make something better, cheaper, faster, more secure, and it right. needs to disrupt. Yeah. I think uh, about that, too, with um, international money transfers and, you know, third-party remittances, like... You know, it's a it's an older business model, and I don't want to knock them, but there's there's a big chunk of you try to send a couple grand overseas, and I was joking with someone else who was on our our podcast. She raises the point that you're you're better off stuffing it in your suitcase. And, and a lot it. of people do that, and there's tremendous crime via Harrow's is a is a, is a market. But I'll give you a question here because it's it's not quite the season, but it's close. So. Um, Migrants to America, workers tend to send money home uh, about once a month, but there's some there's some differences, right? The number one time money is sent to friends and family abroad for migrant workers is Christmas in America. Sure. Yep. Want to guess the number two holiday for money transmission? Small dollar, you know. I'll guess Easter. Nope. Um, it is Mother's Day. Oh, interesting. Mother's Day is the number right. two money transmission holiday because, yeah. right, you came here to make a better life for you and your kids. Yeah. But you also came here to provide for the security of mom. And you left mom, most likely. Yep. Right. And you love mom and you want to help mom and you've cobbled together a couple hundred bucks and you're going to send it to mom or you're going to pay off a bill for her or you're going to do something. Right. You're, you know, yeah. thousands of miles away and you're going to end up paying you know, 20, 30 bucks to send three hundred dollars to mom. Yeah. We have an antiquated system. It's based on exchange rates, which are difficult uh, to be transparent about, which fluctuate. And by the way, if anybody thinks that, you know, the correspondent bank or Western Union is actually exchanging your three hundred dollars. No, they're agglomerating it. They have entire forecasts on when to do currency and FX, right? right. All these things are grossed and, and settled out. Uh, yeah. I think folks have a very, they kind of like, they see these blockchains, which are basically recording individual transactions. And it's really very different than how we use batch settlement systems today, right? When you use a debit card, right? It's not like right. money is being taken out of your account and put into the merchant's bank account on a transaction by transaction basis, they're being agglomerated and netted every day, right? However many chase, however many city swipes end up at, you know, the, the CVS, right? right? It's not like your $8 and 32 cent thing is, is being, uh, moved, right? In. Right. Right. If that were the case, the transaction ledger would be longer than your CVS receipt. <laughs> it's impossible. It's impossible. You'd think, right? <laughs> yeah. That uh, but that brings me to that's that's a good segue. I want to go back 
to CBDC because I I don't want I don't mean to peg you, but I think you're a, a skeptic based on what I've heard and read before. And you know, I have uh, I have concerns. I mean, I, I certainly don't like what China is doing with their CBDC. That's about control and authoritarianism. Um, I'm still debating that you know whether there's a use case here in the U.S. But you've got a smart point on this that I want. I want our listeners to hear. So America runs on CBDC. We all use CBDC. Everybody listening to this podcast is pummeling through CBDC on a daily basis on their life. Right. It's commercial bank digital currency. Right. Credit and debit cards are commercial bank digital currency. Online bill pay, ACH, app-based stuff. You're using commercial bank digital currency. That's right. what, what the transaction is. The CBDC conversation filled in the executive order and happening in Washington and globally is about changing the first C from commercial to central. Right. And it's saying, well, you have commercial bank digital currency, but should you have central bank digital currency? And that's where I become more skeptical. I become skeptical for a couple of reasons. Number one, the Federal Reserve has been one of the great laggards in payments technology globally. And it has done so in a way that is deeply pernicious for working Americans. Yeah. You and I have had plenty of discussions about real-time payments and and I could get you on a tangent. That's probably a whole nother podcast on that. Look, I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm, uh, I'm the real-time payment gremlin. It just, it just pops up when somebody says real-time payments, I pop up, but look, my own calculation, if we'd gone to a real-time payment system when the Bank of England did it in 2007, which I'd note is after the Bank of Mexico, is after the Bank of Brazil, right? right, after the Bank of Poland, I think we would have saved working Americans over $100 billion a year in overdraft fees, check cashing fees, and payday lending fees alone. 70% of people who use check cashers in America have a bank account, according to my research based on FDIC data. And they're using the check casher because they need time access to money. So the idea that the Federal Reserve, who's promising uh, faster payments in the future, right? They're promising five years to get the technology to to the Bank of England, 18 months when the first iPhone came out. Right. (laughs) Right. What are we on? 14? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But but our payment system is not really appreciably any faster. The idea that they are going to be the beneficiary, their central bank digital currency is going to unlock new technology and they're going to be at the vanguard of benefits for society. I find no track record to support that. To the contrary, I find bank CEOs in yachts named Overdraft who've really enjoyed the Fed slow payment system to the tune of profits. So why are we going to switch from, and by the way, the commercial banks are investing in faster payments. The Clearinghouse Real-Time Payment Network, Zelle Real-Time Payments, right? Yep. Uh, And so why are we going to move this? Years ago, by the way, years ago. This is not, yeah. Right, these things are online now, which indicate they had the vision to do it years ago, right? Right. The Federal Reserve had a task force called Fed 2020, which was all about how they were going to have a better payment system. They started this thing, you know, 2008, 9, 10, 12, 2020 came and nothing did change. There was an announcement right before 2020, you know, that they were going to build something in four or five years. In part, I think they couldn't have the 2020 task force go into 2020 with nothing. Right. So, you know, now you brought up China 
And everybody's hyped on China. And there's a deep misunderstanding about what's going on in China. China leapfrogged America's payment system in in three different ways. Number one, they moved from cash to QR codes and digital wallets. They got, despite having billions of debit cards issued by, by the Chinese government, by giving you, you know, bank accounts for the, for your government benefits, people didn't use the cards and they didn't use the cards largely because the merchants wouldn't take the fees. And they went from cash really quickly to these QR codes, which is a whole different technology, very, very, very brought in smartphones and enabled. Two, they got out of the banking system. This all migrated to Alipay and WeChat Pay, Chinese Amazon and Chinese Facebook. Right. So the payment system left the banking system largely, disintermediated it. Whether that's good or bad, in advance or not, different conversation, different topic for a different podcast. The Chinese government didn't like that. They didn't like the growth of the Chinese tech firms. Look at what happened with Jack Ma and Alipay. Right. Right. And the push into CBDC is a ramification of that. It's reigning in tech. It's moving payments back to banking. It's recalibrating the power between these various companies in China and their relationship with the government, private banks, private tech firms. And maybe I should air quote both of the words private there for our conversation. And moving back into payments and control. And, and, you know, you don't have to be a sophisticated China watcher to understand when China rolled out their pilot for CBDC for the government. They did it in the city of Shenzhen. Shenzhen, which is China's attempt to recreate Silicon Valley right across the bay from Hong Kong, is the home of WeChat Pay. Right. So imagine if the the U.S. government said, we're concerned about the growth of online book sales, and we're going to start an online book selling government entity, and we're going to happen to locate it in Seattle. Seattle, Yeah. I think we don't know who they're targeting, right? Right. There are a lot of cities you could have picked. Yeah. The Chinese government picked, picked Shenzhen as a point to say to WeChat, whoa, whoa, whoa. We don't like the fact that you're integrating essentially Facebook and Visa to think of American concepts. And we're going to put in the government system and we're going to pilot it in your home town. Yeah. And so we misunderstand Uh, uh, The final point I'll make on that is China's leapfrog of their technology could have gone globally dominant pretty quickly, right? In America, you had a group of people in New York in the late 50s, early 60s, who didn't like having to go to the bank over the weekend and take out a lot of cash, and they didn't like carrying their checkbook on them. And so they sat down with a group of restaurateurs and created something called the Diners Club. Right. And very, you know... 20 years, fast forward 20 years later, and these little plastic cards are global dominant forms of payment, right? When America came up with a payment evolution, we radically exported it globally and created powerful networks of American-based companies, right? That then, you know, give us significant political and economic control around the Absolutely. world. Witness in and out, Visa, yeah. Visa and MasterCards leaving Russia, right? Yep. China had this technological leapfrog. And then they started not allowing non-Chinese people to put money in the system. Right. You had to have a Chinese bank account to upload money at various points. You had, you had to have Chinese situation. Yeah, you can find AliChat and WeChat Pay in, in your local uh, Walgreens. But a lot of that had to do with globalization of forcing Walgreens to do it in China and providing opportunities for Chinese tourists 
abroad, but they they really controlled the system, right? Keep in mind, China invented gunpowder hundreds of years before Europeans. Yeah, but they didn't they didn't use it to go and colonize the rest of the world. Right. So just because you have technology, you know, I think we have a, a Western view that when you have technology, you're going to use it for export and domination really quickly, not for internal domestic internal control. control purposes. Right. So we've got a, a few minutes left here. Uh, what are you watching in this space? Like, what, what what's next? So the EOs come out. It'll be a few months. McHenry's working on legislation. Loomis is working on legislation. I think the Russia debate will continue. Um, what's exciting about this space to, to you and where do you see it going? Well, a few things. One is I think you have to keep an eye on how much uh, on how the space evolves in relation to war and economic sanctions. Right. We're fighting a war in Europe on parallel battlefields. Right. Russia and Ukraine are shooting at each other. And we're constricting the flow of payments and goods and capital and trade and money in and out of Russia. And the uh, how crypto interacts with this space is, is really a test case. Mm-hmm. Two, you're finding the regulators going around talking more about CBDC. The Federal Reserve has come out with two different white papers on this, right? And I think there's a very technical conversation that needs to be engaged at the uh, uh, technical level with the Boston Fed having their Project Hamilton paper coming out because they, they've put a few forks in the road on design of how open the system is going to be and how not. Three, you have lines starting to form about what CBDC and crypto is as it relates to efficiency and inclusion and what the role of government is. So you have one group of folks who say, look, a CBDC can have tremendous financial inclusion capability. That logic tends to lead you to also say, well, then the government should be providing direct accounts and digital wallets to allow people to access their digital money, whether that's Fed accounts, an idea put out by Morgan Ricks and Lev Menard that's gained a lot of traction and popularity in the Hill. Brookings just published this week a piece by Tim Massad and Hal Jackson proposing treasury accounts, mm-hmm. right? And then you have the Federal Reserve saying, we don't want to do Fed accounts. Right. Right. Whether they say we don't want to or we don't have the legal authority, often legal authority is code for we don't want to, because when they want to, somehow the legal authority has always been there. Find a way. Yeah. Right. And so in this space, you you see this immediate tension. Well, if you're not going to provide the account, who is? I think it's very interesting, the president's working group on financial markets, which put out uh, an earlier paper on on stable coins. On stable coins, yep. Really prioritized the Federal Reserve to be the Uber regulator of crypto. And they did it by saying that that not only issuers, but digital wallets should be subject to Federal Reserve supervision. And it was done in a very, very uh, uh, quiet way which I'll say to the folks in the podcast as a treat for those who've, who've stuck through to the, to the end of the conversation. When you look at the language in the president's working group, they talk about all stablecoin issuers need to be insured depository institutions. Now, you know, Brian, you've been around this town a long time, and you know that insured depository institutions, IDI is the acronym, is the easy way of saying banks and credit unions, anybody who offers an account with deposit insurance. Otherwise, you say banks and credit unions. That's what IDI means in regular parlance in Washington. 
But when you saw what the president's working group did, they footnoted it. And in the footnote, they only referenced the FDIC's deposit insurance. So even though they use the term that's for both. Yeah. Yep. So when you dig in and you say, well, why is that? Well, if you offer FDIC deposit insurance and you have to have a bank holding company, if you have a bank holding company, you're subject to regulation by the Fed at the holding company level. If you have a credit union, you're not subject to Federal Reserve regulation. You're just by the NCUA. So a credit union, you would think, is an ins- by definition, is an insured depository institution. And in general, when you see that top line language, you're like, oh, okay, banks and credit unions are the ones we want to drive stable coin issuance and digital wallet into the banking system with bank regulation. Oh, no, contraire. When you read the fine print, it's only we want to drive this into the system that's regulated by the Fed. Interesting. I'm going to have to go back and reread that. It, it, it is. And it's, it's telling that the Fed wants the regulatory authority, the intellectual capability and platform, but not the requirement that those benefits then get passed on to consumers as it relates to creating low cost accounts. Now, by the way, I'm not saying that that's necessarily a good or bad idea. Right. And sure. you know, yeah. my earlier comment, you know, yeah. uh, uh, you've seen, you know, large commercial banks, you know, uh, really make m- aggressive moves, reducing overdraft fees recently with absent any legislation or regulation staring them down the throat. Right. Meanwhile, the Federal Reserve gives lots of little banks regulatory pats on the back for for having huge reliance on overdraft fees for their core business model. Uh But what you're finding is, you know, what I'm seeing here and what I'm paying attention to is the fight between the regulators, particularly between the Fed and the SEC as it relates to this parallel track. Is crypto a security or is it money? Right. And then, you know, the various studies required by uh, this executive order are going to start coming out. There are going to be lots of meetings. There's going to be lots of conversations. There's going to be lots of hearings. I'm skeptical that the Hill will legislate. That my read. Yeah, I don't think anything will actually get passed. Yeah, yeah. But when you read when you read what the Fed said in their white paper on, on CBDC, they said, "Well, you know, we love legislation, but we really want Congress to signal it's okay." Yeah, and you know, you're a creature of Congress, and you get this game. What, how can Congress signal the go ad without passing something? Without passing a bill, right? <laughs> Especially in today's environment, you know? Like, yeah. So, and, and who decides when they've gotten the signal? Who's sending that signal, right? Right. And we're in a midterm year, and yeah. But yeah. it sounds to me like the, the Fed is going to decide when it's gotten the okay from Congress. Yeah. And is that the chair and ranking? Is that some level of bipartisanship? Is that a simple majority? What is that a bill out of committee? Is that a press conference? Uh, broadly speaking, I think we're going to, you know, have to ask ourselves if Congress continues to polarize, what is bipartisanship through executive action? Right. Well, another podcast topic. That, yeah. that is, you know, I, I don't think that we're going to get the stable coin legislation that the president's working group requested. So then the question also becomes, how is that regulatory ball going to advance absent legislation? Um, and, you know, the, the final question is markets always work until they don't. Uh, I'm constantly reminded my first job um, uh, in the Senate 
for Senator Sarbanes, I came on when the, it was a 50-50 Senate and Democrats were in the minority, but we were working on what would happen if the Senate flipped and we were in the majority. And I believe CQ said that the banking committee had the widest intellectual swing between then Phil Graham from Texas to Paul Sarbanes of, of yeah. Maryland. And we, when, when Jim Jeffords switched, we had a 12 page agenda ready to go. And we rolled out a press conference, 12 page agenda. You can find it digitized somewhere since the you know, documents have become digitized, but not money. Right. 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 Do you know how many times the word accounting appeared in that 12 page agenda? Yeah. Zero. I bet. Correct. Yeah. Right. Yet. If I say Sarbanes, most listeners in this podcast will probably like play word associates. Yeah, right. Right. So you know, um, the 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 dominant issue is often the one that you don't see coming. Yeah. And in the world of crypto, there's potential ways, whether that's sanctions evasions, whether that's a blip in the market, whether that's continued bullish growth and appreciation of these currencies, which which are driving. Ordinary consumers. One of the statistics I pay the most attention to is a poll for Morning Consult that came out that showed African Americans had twice the rate of crypto ownership of whites. Interesting. You don't find many assets where that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I think there are different layers upon uh, the politics of crypto that haven't yet seeped into Washington because they don't fully understand how it's been done being digested across America. I'm with with you. And that, that maybe that's a good place to wrap. I think this is a, this is a topic that Washington is just starting to, you know, dip their toe in and, and understand. And I started by saying, you know, I feel like I keep getting lucky in crypto. We, a colleague of mine held a dinner last, it must've been last June, or maybe I'm going to mess up the dates now. Maybe it was July. It was a, a Tuesday night. We got some friends together to talk crypto because we saw this as a potential issue maybe for later in the year. The next day, the infrastructure amendment drops and this town just just catches crypto fever and, and we're off to the races. But um, I think we're just kind of at the first, second inning of this and we'll, we'll have to have you back on when we get when we get deeper into the game. It's a pleasure. You've had a great group of folks. I've been excited to join your illustrious guest list, and I'm always here for you, Brian, and, and happy to engage in the future. Great. Well, thank you for joining. Um, and, and to all our listeners, thanks for tuning in to another episode in our, our crypto series and be on the lookout for more as, as this is a topic we'll continue to explore. Thank you for listening to the HPS Insights Podcast, produced by Hamilton Place Strategies. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at HPS Insights and follow us on the web at HamiltonPlaceStrategies.com.